If you're joining us for the first time, we have been working our way through the book of Numbers. This is a six-part series. We are on message number four. About Numbers, what you need to understand is that Numbers is a book that is built upon a covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, back in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and of your descendants. I am going to give them a land. That promise of land continues throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now we're into Numbers. And so we are seeing whether or not God is a faithful God, whether he's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And if he is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God to his people, you can trust him in the covenant that he has made to you with salvation. Now, the people of Israel leave Egypt, they travel out into the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai, and they are there for approximately one year. From Mount Sinai, and if you follow a map, we'll look at that in a little bit, if you follow the map around a little east and then up to the north, it's approximately a 200-mile journey. That would be like us walking from here to Mackinac. And just at walking speed, depending on the nature of the group, we could make it there in two to four weeks. Maybe a little WD-40 for some of your joints if you need that. But uh, about that long. However, what we have seen back in Numbers 13 and 14 is that as the people began their journey away from Sinai... The spies went up into Canaan to spy out the land. They bring a report back. And part of the report is that there are giants in the land. It's going to be tough. And the people grumble and complain. And that was not the first time with their grumbling and complaining. But because of their grumbling and complaining, that perpetual sin that you see throughout Numbers, God says, okay, this generation... This particular generation that was numbered in chapter 1 of 600,000 plus, you are going to spend 40 years in the wilderness because of your unbelief and you are going to die out. And then there's a generation that was 20 and under that is coming up and as we go through the last two weeks of numbers, the next two weeks, we are going to see that this generation comes up and before they're ready to enter into the promised land, they number approximately 600,000. And God is going to be faithful to his covenant that he began with Abraham. He is going to bring his people into the land. So we are anticipating God doing a work. This morning, what we're looking at is chapters 20 and 21. There's a contrast between the two chapters. And what you see in chapter 20 is the thinning out or the death of the older generation, particularly the leaders. So I've divided this just into two easy points for us, a generation coming to an end, a generation coming to an end, and then a generation of new beginnings. So a generation coming to an end starts with Miriam. Miriam is in one of the leaders here in Israel's history. The people have returned to the wilderness of Zin. Um, it says that they have stayed in the land of Kadesh. 
Now, where have we seen this before? Can you pull up the first slide with the map here? Okay, so Kadesh, if I've got this here, is this area right there on the map. We've traveled, traveled from Egypt over here, and we've journeyed down to Sinai here, and now they've made their way up to this section here. And for about 40 years, 39 years, they are just hanging out in this area, perhaps going in circles. Kadesh was brought up earlier in the book of Numbers. It was brought up back in chapter 13, where the people had been complaining, and you can leave that map up there, Jason. The people had been complaining about the reports that the spies brought back from the land. Out of that report, like I mentioned earlier, the judgment was that everyone over the age of 20 would die in the wilderness. That place, Kadesh, is mentioned in chapter 14, 13 and 14, and now we're seeing here Miriam. Miriam, one of the leaders, if you will, along with Aaron and Moses in Israel's history, and now Miriam's death is taking place at that same spot where God said that this generation would die out. Keep in mind, between chapters 19 and 20, we're thinking that we've had about 38 years that have taken place. So if we spent a year at Sinai, we've had 39 or 38 years in the wilderness, we're year 39, year 40, we're anticipating moving into the promised land. So God starts this section with a theme of death. Moving on into verses 2 through 13, we see that God is going to judge Moses for his sin. Now look at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. We've seen this theme of rebellion against the leadership. Verse 3, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. You might remember from last week, Korah's rebellion. They're probably referencing this. We wish that we would have just perished with them because we're out here in the wilderness. Verse 4, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or, or vines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Now just note the nature of their complaining and grumbling. Moses certainly led them out of Egypt, but he wasn't twisting anybody's arm. These folks were ready to fly out of Egypt away from their slavery. It was their choice. The reason as to why they are in the wilderness that they're complaining about is that they have been complainers. And they know that they've been in this wilderness for these years because of judgment. Now notice the very thing that they want. Verse 5, it is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. These are the very things that God had promised would be in the land back in chapter 13. Do you remember when the spies went in and brought that cluster of grapes, the vines? Same words, God also said, the figs and the pomegranates are there. So here's a group of people missing out on what they could have, but they're missing out because of their 
sin and the consequences of their sin. Now, when this complaining starts, Moses and Aaron once again fall before the Lord. And in response, God gives Moses instruction as to how to proceed in light of this complaining people. So verse 8, he says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes. Now, don't think of some boulder here. Think of something maybe up along Lake Superior on the Upper Peninsula, a a huge cliff. They're wandering through the wilderness, and here is this mountain or this wall of, of massive rock. So Moses, tell the rock before their eyes, the one that they can all see, the whole camp can see it. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Key phrase in there is talk to the rock. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly, this complaining, grumbling assembly together before this rock. And he said to them, and note Moses' tone now. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? You can just note that something is going on with Moses' attitude here. Are we the ones who are supposed to bring water for you out of this rock? So verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. However, what had God told Moses to do to the rock? Speak to it. Now, not to confuse this event with an earlier rock in Exodus 17 where Moses was supposed to strike the rock. Now, there's two times that we come to the rock, if you will. And now in Numbers, It's not strike the rock, Moses. I simply want you to speak to that massive rock and it will yield its water. But instead, Moses disobeys. And yet even in Moses' disobedience, God brings water. So verse 12. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel... Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, it's interesting that God's focal point of judgment in this episode does not fall on the people who are grumbling and complaining. Where does it fall? On whom does it fall? It falls on Moses, the leadership here. And why does God bring judgment on Moses? It's because Moses' actions have, in one sense, tarnished the reputation of God before the people. He said that you are supposed to regard me as holy. You did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. Now, just a little aside, folks, I think that this is an important lesson for the Christian home, where God has given husbands and fathers a certain level of headship, And your choices in the home are to make much of God's holiness. Dads, fathers, husbands, your decisions in the home are not self-centric, self-seeking decisions. 
You have an assembly, if you will, in your home, and your actions and your behavior are supposed to point to the greater authority in your life, the holiness of God. And even all of us, in one way, are called to this responsibility in life that as we're journeying through the wilderness, our lives are meant to be a reflection to the world of the holiness of God. It's not about us. First Peter talks about be holy as God is holy. Live lives that point to the holiness, the, the reputation of God, not oneself. And so what God goes on to tell Moses is that to live the way that you lived where you did not live for the holiness of God is a demonstration of unbelief. You're like, well, wait a second. Did Moses stop believing in the existence of God? No, I don't think so. But his, way, his faith wavered in the greatness of God. His faith failed, if you will, in the greatness of God. And so what happens is you don't have to be a practical atheist to have sin in your life. All you have to do is have a high view of yourself and a low view of God. And all sin boils down to this simple low view of God. God, I'm going to do it my way. Your authority, your law, your commands. No, I'm going to do it my way. So God sees Moses' unbelief. And the judgment that God brings down on Moses, well, it seems pretty harsh, but this is God's prerogative. You, Moses, you're not going to go into the land because of this. Now, what do we do with that? What's the lesson that we should be picking up from this section here? Well, thankfully, we have the word of God that even helps us in particular with this chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 6. It says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, and here it is, here's the purpose clause, in order that we might not desire evil as they did. To live one's life for anything other than the reputation of God is to desire evil. And that's just kind of like a face slap to me. I thought that there were okay things to live for. Well, if it's not under the holiness and obedience of God, Paul is saying it's evil. And so very simply, we come through this portion of numbers, and this is an example for us, don't desire evil. Live for the holiness and the reputation of God in and through your lives. The chapter continues with more defeat. In verses 14 through 21, there's a third story in this chapter about a group of people, Edom. And who are these Edomites? They are the descendants of Esau. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, Abraham is an old patriarch here that God made a promise with that he's going to make a nation from Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons that the nation of Israel comes from. Esau is a brother over here, and a nation comes from him. Esau settles in this place. It's called Edom here. 
So verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, and he's talking in ancestral terms. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass, pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we've passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. Verse 19. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Okay, so here's Edom in this, in this general area. You can see this here. Israel is up here in Kadesh, and they are supposed to make their way across this region here and come up into the promised land on this side of the Jordan River. You can't see that too well, but that's the general route that they're supposed to take. And so they come to this place of Edom, and Edom is asked, let us pass through on the king's highway. It's very interesting. Historically, there were roads that went from Egypt up into Mesopotamia and across the Arabian Peninsula. And this area, these roads were called the king's highway. It was a, it was a way of just, it was the roads of transportation. And so they're asking to cut through, pick up on the king's highway, and then head north. All right. Edom says, nope. You're not going to do it. Now, what do you notice about the communication that happens in these verses? Who is completely absent from all of the communication? You're noticing that Moses has no communication with the Lord here. This is man's plan. There's a lack of dependence on the Lord. And they get pushed away by Edom. And so you walk up to this third section, you got Miriam, you got the waters, you got Edom, and you're just seeing defeat, defeat, defeat. Okay, fourth section here in chapter 20. I won't read the whole section, but look down at verse 24. Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. Why is Aaron not to enter the land? Because Aaron, you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Aaron was complicit with Moses with this whole rock thing. So verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. So Aaron dies. Thankfully, his priesthood is going to continue on and his priesthood is going to eventually come to its climax in the person of Christ who will be the ultimate intercessor for us. So what's the takeaway from chapter 20 as we just survey this chapter? You're left with this question. Will the failed leadership of God's people, the leaders of God's people, will their failed leadership ruin God's plan? 
Is this whole thing going to be done because the leaders botched it? Can the greatest of leaders thwart the faithfulness of God? I think we have seen over the last decade, maybe it's because of the ease and access of information travel, we have seen so many leaders within the Christian church fail in sin. And you step back and you say, wow, look at the damage that that caused. And it is tremendous in the way it affects people. And yet you come through chapter 20 and you see that this has been happening for millennia. Where God is working with flawed individuals and he can even accomplish good purposes. And we know that Moses was a man of faithfulness as you read earlier chapters in the book of Numbers. And the question is, as you come out of chapter 20, okay, what now, God? Are you dependent on man to accomplish your plan? Let's move into chapter 21. Chapter 21, we now have a generation of new beginnings. A generation of new beginnings. Let me read to you what one scholar has said about this move from chapter to chapter uh, 20 to 21. Ian DeGood is his name. He says, in many respects, Numbers 20 was the end of the line for the first generation. It shows us the events of the 40th year of wilderness wandering bracketed by the deaths of Miriam and Aaron. But now in Numbers 21, we begin to read the story of the second generation. Now listen, as in real life, such transitions are not hard and fast. And this is important as you read the book of Numbers. It's not as though the whole first generation is dead. It's phasing in the new generation and phasing out the old. The remnant of the first generation is still present until chapter 26 when the complete transfer is marked by a new census. Nevertheless, in some ways, the story of the new generation starts here in 21. So what's going to happen with the new generation? Well, look at verses 1 through 3. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of the Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Horma. Okay, so our next map here, if I can just show you where we're at, a little bit different map just because of the things that are taking place. You see this little area here called Arad there. They were coming up across this way. They were pushed back by Edom, so they weren't able to cross here is our best guess. In the meantime, there's a king, a Canaanite king in the land right here, who says, these people look weak. They just got pushed back by the Edomites. I'm going to go out and do war against them. So this king connected to Arad comes down and takes captives, kind of just snipes people perhaps off the outside skirts of the camp, takes them back up. Well, the people, the new generation says, okay, we're going to go to the Lord and ask him for help. And so chapter 21, coming away from chapter 20, marked by death and defeat, chapter 21, they're going to the Lord, and the Lord gives them this first victory. Now, 
One thing to keep in mind if you're just connecting dots in the book of Numbers, we've seen this place called Horma before. Let me see if I can recall this to your mind. When Moses came to the people of Israel in chapter 14 and said, because of your complaining and sin, you will not enter the land of Canaan, the people, they saw their sin and they said, wait a second, we deserve this land. And so a group of people against Moses' leadership went up into the land without the ark, without the presence of God, and they got defeated by the Canaanites, and I believe it was the Amalekites. I'm not looking right now at the text. And guess what this place is called right here where they got defeated when they went without the Lord? It was Horma. And so it's as though God is saying, I want you to know there was a place in your history where you went without me at Horma and you experienced defeat. You come back to this place perhaps 38 years later and what now? Are you going to go forward with or without me? They went forward with him and God gives them a victory right here. And now you see this new theme of victory starting to take place in the book of Numbers. There's a second episode of victory in here. You skip down to verses 21 and following. This is with a man named Sihon. Now Israel had advanced further north. They come to the land of the Amorites under the rule of Sihon. And they send a messenger to the king in verse 22. That says this, 22. Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. Does this sound familiar? Like Edom, previous chapter. We will go by the king's highway, same route that they had talked about, until we have passed through your territory. Well, Sion thinks that, no, I don't want them coming through. Thinks that Israel is a nation to be conquered. But look down at verse 24. Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon all the way up to the Jabbok. All right, so here we are now. We've come back down under Edom. We've traveled up this way. We meet King Sihon here. And there's the Arnon Gorge right there in that area. And the Jabbok, I don't know if it's on this map, is about 50 miles up here, this Jabbok River. So here's approximately 2 million people. And they have marched this way. They run into Sihon. Sihon says, no. And God is with them, and he clears out this whole area for them. Another victory in this section. All right, continue down to verses 31 to 35. There's another king named Og. Arad, Sihon, and Og. Verse 33, it says that they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. Verse 34. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear King Og. For I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land and do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. And that's exactly what happened. And so King Og is further north. In this area here, they do war with King Og and he gets pushed back up in the Bashan area, somewhere up in this area. So you can see from the Dead Sea, this march that they've had all along this way, this young little nation that was experiencing defeat previously, 
is now being given victory after victory after victory because of God. So, you have victory that's pronounced in this, in this chapter here. Meaning this, the sins of God's leaders in chapter 20 is not going to thwart or hinder the faithfulness of God. Let's remember this, folks. Our greatest hope is not in a Christian man or a leader. Um, so many people have these attachments to individuals, and it's as though their faith clings to that one individual. And that individual is imperfect, a sinner. And that individual might fail. And some of you have told me your stories where you've attended churches and been shepherded by pastors who wandered off into great sin and you had respected him highly. And when he wandered off into sin, it shook your faith to the core. And no doubt that is a, an unsettling experience. And yet what we see in chapter 20 is Men are going to sin. And our faith, our hope, our confidence in life is not going to be attached to a man. So you might be a young person or you might be an adult who had shaky parents in terms of their faith. Our faith is not attached to our parents. Our faith is attached to God, the one who makes promises and who can keep promises to his people. And so when God says, this is my salvation that I'm giving to you, it doesn't come to us from a man. It comes to us from God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Now, right in the middle of chapter 21 is an episode of sin. And it's so characteristic of our lives where God is giving us victory. They're walking by faith, by faith, by faith, but they're not perfect, and here's sin. So let's look at verses 4 and following of chapter 21. Here's the fiery serpents. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea. So this is earlier. They journey down to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We have heard this over and over again. And what always happens when the grumbling and complaining takes place? We'll find out. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God, why have you done this? Well, verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, if you grew up attending church a few decades ago, and you were in the musty basement of a Baptist church, you probably saw a flannel graph, and the teacher would nicely put up the snakes on the flannel graph, and attached to those snakes were flames of fire. <laughs> My, oh my. Well, these probably are not fire-breathing serpents. It's probably that when they bite, they have a burning venom that comes in, and it's lethal, and it kills them. Now, notice what happens in verse 7. 
This generation has a different response. In verse 7, it says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prays for the people. Their actions are indicative of repentance. Moses intercedes. And verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Moses has to make this pole, and then he has to fashion, or he takes this pole, and he has to fashion a bronze serpent onto this pole, and if anyone is bitten by these fiery serpents... What they do is they have to lift their eyes up off the serpents and look to the serpent on that pole. And what God is saying is, I'm calling you to a step of faith. You've demonstrated unbelief up to this point and that you don't trust me, but now I'm calling you to a step of look up and believe that this will be your life, your salvation. Several bits in this story that are worth noting. As you see the serpents, you can't help but see that they are the very forms of judgment. Here comes judgment that is, that is killing the people. They're invading the camp. These snakes were not just random animals where God was like, well, hmm, of all of my creation of animals, I think I'll send snakes to them. Where did they want to go back to over and over? Egypt. The animal that represents Egypt is the serpent. It was a symbol of their power. You want to go back to Egypt? You remember what Egypt was all about? It was all about slavery. It was all about death. Here comes this symbol. Not only that, but as you're reading scripture, where do we read about the serpent first in the Bible? Genesis 3. And what happens when the serpent comes into God's creation among God's people? It brings death. However, Moses is told, bring a bronze serpent, raise it up so that the people can lift their eyes off these agents of judgment, and they can fix their eyes on this bronze serpent, and with that bronze serpent, they will experience life. Now, the Bible picks up on this. So take your Bible, and let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. In John 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, who is an expert in the Old Testament. He's able to pick up on themes and uh, stories of the Old Testament. So earlier in John 3, you might remember, he tells Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And I think Nicodemus knows that this is mentioned in the Old Testament under Ezekiel 36, where God is going to wash the hearts of his people and give them a spirit. Nicodemus is kind of puzzled by things. And Jesus keeps teaching about new life that is going to happen, being born again. So verses 14 and 15, he says, here's another story. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is that there is a picture, a connection between this event that happens in Numbers 21 with the serpent being lifted up and the people who have been bitten by the fiery serpents lifting their eyes off of the things in life and saying, by faith I have to look at that serpent and live. And Jesus is saying, now as that serpent was lifted up, so I must be lifted up for what reason? So that whoever believes, whoever looks to the Son might have eternal life. And what we see here is that only Jesus is going to be the one whom your eyes can be fixed upon, whom your eyes can believe upon, if you will, for eternal life. But you say, okay, what's the connection between the bronze serpent on the pole here and Jesus being on the cross? Well, the very things that were slithering around and biting the people, the serpents, they're causing death. That was the very thing that was lifted up on the pole. The serpents causing death. Now there's a huge serpent. Seems like it would be the ultimate death agent up on the pole. For us, the serpents are what? They're sin. The wages of sin are death. And when Jesus went to the cross... He's lifted up on the cross, and what did he become on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you can see this, the judgment that's falling on the people with the serpents is what's up on the pole here. And for us... The judgment that we have is our sin. And what will sin do? Sin will lead to eternal death. So what's on the cross? Sin. He made him to be sin for us on the cross. And so there is Jesus. Every light sin, every disgusting sin, every vile sin now is on him. He has become sin. Everything that you've worshipped in place of God is now on Christ. Every idolatrous thought that rivaled God in your life, you weren't setting him apart as holy. You were living for yourself. That's been put on Christ. Every word that has been spoken that has transgressed the character of God Every time you and I have chosen something or someone other than God to find your satisfaction and rest in. Every act of disrespect and dishonor towards your parents, every evil thought of someone else, every lustful act, every sin of stealing something, every lie, every jealousy, all of the Ten Commandments that we have broken is what I've just named. All of those in our lives are heaped up on Christ. There's Christ lifted up, the serpent, the slithering serpent. Sin. He became sin. He became all of that for you. And the wrath of God came hot and heavy and was poured out on him because he willingly became sin for you. So now that anyone who in life 
sees their sin and lifts their eyes up, lifts their eyes up to the Son of Man who is on the cross and says, I can't find salvation here. I can't find salvation there. I can't find it anywhere. Where am I going to find it? The Son of Man who's been lifted up on the cross. Get your eyes up and see the Son. The one who has been put on the cross is there for our salvation and anyone who believes in him shall be saved. And so you come through this and you see the failure, failure, failure of all the leaders. Will it thwart the plan of God? No, there's always hope in spite of the failures of man because there's one man who didn't fail. And he was lifted up as our savior and all those who come to him and say, okay, I see the sin, I've been bitten. I have the judgment of sin and we all feel it, don't we? We all have it. This past week, you probably got something like right here in the corner of your brain. You're like, Ugh, that's sin. Well, that's deserving of death. And that was placed on Christ. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, hey, the son of man was lifted up, but he doesn't stop there. Why was the son of man lifted up? Verse 16. For this reason, God so loved. And you think about the love that we've seen in the Old Testament, that steadfast love, that uncompromising, covenantal, won't give up, won't fail love. Here is God's love. For God so loved in this way that he raised his son up and his son became judgment for us so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you are a non-Christian this morning, which we have all been at one point, but you this morning might be a non-Christian, here's what we take away from Numbers 21 as we follow it through Scripture. You will see lots of botched leadership in your life, but don't place your faith in those leaders. You have to come to Christ and place your faith in him. Even this morning, you would repent and turn from your sin and trust Christ. To the Christian, here is God's faithfulness. Jesus became sin for you. And this morning, be assured that any sin that you have committed this last week, any sin that you've committed this last year in your lifetime, no matter how monumental it is, Jesus became sin for you. It was put upon him. And now God is going to faithfully lead you to his home. So that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion on the day of Christ when you enter into his eternal home. And we come out of Numbers 21 saying, is God faithful? And the answer is, yes, he is. Our hope and our trust is in him. Let's pray.